geographically speaking, depending on where you are, you get access to different things and you get access to different technologies and different platforms. And one, one really, really easy way to see how non-evenly distributed resources are from like a futuristic perspective is go from any city in the world to New York or San Francisco, because those are the places that get things first. And those are the places that see the new launches and the new crazy stuff. And especially I think for me, and this is a recent thing, I just moved to San Francisco from Toronto about a month ago, but the amount of sort of call like next generation or future ish stuff is already here. And it's stuff that you wouldn't expect to see in a city like Toronto for the next couple of years. So stuff like you know, sub 10 minute grocery delivery for whatever you want. Definitely, definitely rings true. It, it is not distributed easily. Um, and I think part of that as well is like, it's hard to scale and distribute things. It's easy to do a lot of things in a very small arena. Um, it's very difficult to do those things on like a global scale. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Next Iteration Podcast. Today's guest is Riley Finch. Uh, Riley's a pretty interesting dude. Canadian national sailing team, biker dude at a 4VC, uh, aka director of operations of platform. Um, and he's had a pretty, pretty non-traditional path to VC, starting out in business development and working his way through a few different Toronto-based startups before breaking in. Uh, so really excited to talk to him today about his career journey uh, and what he thinks of venture capital, but also just shoot the shit with him because he's a dope guy. So yeah, welcome to the podcast, Riley. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of Sorry. course. Uh, I just wanted to start by giving a quick shout out to uh, at Sam Elite underscore. I don't know who you are or we don't know who you are, Sam, but like you've been a, a loyal listener from the podcast, according to the stats. So shout out to you real quick. Um, anyways, quick tangent there, but I got to show appreciation, you know. Uh, Riley, I wanted to start the podcast by throwing a quick quote your way. Uh, and we, we absolutely love quotes on here. But uh, I've heard that this quote has been thrown around the world of VC a bit. So I just wanted to hear what your perspective on the quote is based on your own personal experience and or perhaps um, from the experience of your colleagues. Uh, but the quote is, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on what context you're looking at it in and like how you're thinking about it. I think one, one frame of reference to think about that in, and, and one thing I think is super interesting is geographically speaking, depending on where you are, um, you get access to different things and you act, get access to different technologies and different platforms. And one, like, one really, really easy way to see how non-evenly distributed resources are from like a futuristic perspective is go from any city in the world to New York or San Francisco. Um, because those are the places that get things first. And those are the places that see the new launches and the new crazy stuff. And especially I think for me, and this is a recent thing, I just moved to San Francisco from Toronto about a month ago, but um, the amount of the amount of sort of call like next generation or future ish stuff is already here. And it's stuff that you wouldn't expect to see in a city like Toronto for the next couple of years. So stuff like, you know, sub 10 minute grocery delivery for whatever you want. Um, stuff like, you know, just, just general kind of techie stuff definitely, definitely rings true. It, it is not distributed easily. Um, and I think part of that as well is like, it's hard to scale and distribute things. It's easy to do a lot of things in a very small arena. Um, it's very difficult to do those things on like a global scale. And so I see a lot of companies like, especially FinTech companies usually are domestic for a long time and have a long, uh, a really tough time scaling to different markets because of regulatory reasons and legal reasons and environmental reasons and different consumer behaviors and patterns. Um, so yeah, that's a good quote. I like it. Yeah. Especially when you look at, for example, I think Dubai has like Uber chopper. I mean, yeah. I think you're going to be getting that here in Toronto. Man, uh, you're talking about helicopters and I went to grocery delivery, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, there's, like, uh, I was like, hungry. you're like, I want to fly. <laughs> it's just to the moon you know you got to expand your scope as much as possible and it's like every day i keep hearing about like new technologies that seem so futuristic it exists today like flying cars exist today it's just not mass produced it's not uh ubiquitously available i've even seen their 3d printing skyscrapers now just yeah. like what the, what the hell that's absolutely insane that's yeah. pretty, um i think that quote actually i'm oh, sorry go ahead 
Right. I was gonna say the quote reminds me um, a little bit about VC because I think VC is the exact same way. Like it's you know there's there's a lot of VCs concentrated on the coast, right? New York and San Francisco in particular, and it's sort of like the money goes where the people are, the money goes where the ideas are, and the money chases where those ideas are geographically, right? So does a four you know kind of make an effort to be conscious of that and like invest in different markets, or are they like very North America focused? Yeah, for sure. So maybe to, to give a little context to that, uh, I work at a firm called the Four Capital. Um, we're an early stage fund, pre-seed. So we invest at the earliest stage if we can, um, sort of like 850K to $1.5 million checks and call it like two to $3 million rounds. Um, geographically speaking, we try to be open to anything. Uh, and we're pretty active in markets like India. Uh, we've got a few investments in the UK. We've got a few investments across Europe. I think we've got a couple in China. Um, I think looking looking outside of the Bay Area definitely makes a lot of sense uh, in venture because there is a lot of concentration. Um, the flip side to that, though, is, you know, there's a reason there's a lot of concentration. It's not just like, you know, someone woke up overnight and said, hey, all of the smart people are going to live in San Francisco or New York. Um, but out of necessity, a lot of people move from, you know, smaller satellite geographies, like smaller towns like you know, think of like maybe Atlanta or Austin and those places are getting their own tech scene right now. And they're really on the up and up. And I think Toronto's in that bucket as well. Um, I definitely think it's one of those things where these like major hubs didn't start for no reason. So they will continue to be hubs and you will continue to see that. But what you'll also see is, especially with like a more distributed world where we've got Zoom and we can do everything remote, like it becomes a lot easier to do things in different geographies. So like, if you look back to the early 2000s, um, you know, if you were raising venture funding, you'd get like flown out on a private jet to Sand Hill Road to have a three hour meeting with a partner at, you know, Kleiner Perkins, and then you'd get back on the private jet and get flown back. And then in the 2010s, it was like, okay, we'll fly out for a week of investor meetings. And now it's, we'll hop on 20 Zooms in one day and talk to every firm that would even think about looking at us uh, anywhere. So like geography doesn't really matter anymore. Most people, you know, didn't think about it. It's a bit of an afterthought. Um, there definitely are implications though, uh, for what that means. And, you know, even little things like one of our companies that's, you know, in a different geography right now is trying to hire engineers and there's just less engineers where they are than there is in San Francisco, for example. Now, maybe they're more, you know, they're cheaper, they're more cost-effective, they're easier to hire comparatively, but like that doesn't necessarily change the fact that there's just less. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it too. Like there's a, a couple of good books. I think the book is called VC in American history. And it talks about the birth of like VC as an asset class, meaning venture capital. Um, and it's really cool. It goes back into like the Sun Microsystems days and like early HP, Hewlett Packard. Like I think HP Ventures was one of the first venture firms to ever be. Um, and the companies that they were investing were companies like NVIDIA and Intel and AMD. And these were companies that were manufacturing microprocessors out of silicon, which is why we call it Silicon Valley, because all of the tech innovation in those silicon chips were in San Francisco and on the peninsula down through Palo Alto and Menlo Park and Redwood. Um, so like, that's the reason that all of this happens in San Francisco. And, you know, similarly, if you look at New York, there's a whole history there around financial industry and financial services. Um, it started for a reason, whether or not it'll stay this way is, is up to anyone. But I think one of the cool things about venture, uh, is it's so new. Uh, when you think about like public equities, people have been trading public equities since like the 1800s. Uh, it's not a new concept. It's been around for a while. Venture has really only been around since the seventies and it's really only been around in its current form since the late nineties, early two thousands. So it's still early days. Uh, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that, especially when they're thinking about venture as an asset class from like a macro perspective, just because it's been so successful. So because it's still so new, like are they iterating quickly as well? Uh, like just in terms of, uh, I guess, like broadening the scope of what they consider like best practices. For example, you mentioned how um, they, like, they, they really want people to be in this hub, right? Um, I was listening to the podcast about uh, Atlassian's early days. So Atlassian is, I'm pretty sure they're a unicorn, uh, but they're based out of Australia. And like in their early days, the, the investors that they were looking towards were, they're all in, uh, in Silicon Valley. 
and they were telling the Atlassian co-founders like you come down here and we'll we'll fund you but they didn't want to move so they held their ground they set up shot in Australia and I mean as we all know like everyone uses Jira these days Um, Atlassian has become a very prolific company has that has experiences like that kind of allowed VCs to become more adopting of um, more lenient practices I guess so that geography doesn't have to be a limiting factor? Um, I think that people are starting to grow with the current environment. Um, Now, what that means may differ, right? Like there are people that still want to meet founders in person before writing checks into a company. We've done lots of deals since the start of COVID that, you know, the firm has never met the founder face-to-face or in person before doing that. Um, I totally get it. Uh, you know, a lot of the times, especially at early stage, we're working with founders that haven't really started a company. They're super young. They haven't really done much. And you want to be able to make that in part like that, you know, that real life connection where you kind of get to know someone beyond the confines of just a Zoom call. Um, And that being said, I don't think that means you need to meet them in person. I think that means you need to have conversations, not just around what they're building and what they're doing right now to get to know them as a human being which is usually easier to do offline. Um, But I think that that plays a big part of it for sure. I mean, if you look at a company like Atlassian, that's now one of the great like, you know, semi bootstrappy uh, success stories of the last, you know, however many years, companies like that, 1Password, I think MailChimp was another one recently that was like super bootstrapped and they were based in, I want to say like Atlanta. uh, So another non-traditional geography. So, I mean, we can look at it from a lot of different ways. I think one is that, hey, like whatever firm that was missed out on a really, really good deal and could have made a shit ton of money. Um, On the flip side, maybe the conversation is Atlassian was a company that probably didn't need venture funding and was able to do it without and probably better off to do so without. Um, One of the things I noticed working at ClearBank or ClearCo now, which is the company I was at prior to before, is a lot of companies raise venture for the wrong reasons. Um, They raise venture because it's like, cool. You get the TechCrunch article, you get to, you know, put a board together, you get to, you know, tell everyone you raised however million bucks and your company's now worth a whole bunch of money. Um, those aren't good reasons to want to raise, you know, a couple million bucks and dilute yourself in your own company. Like just frankly, those are very bad reasons too. Um, good reasons would be something like, Hey, I want to go hire a engineering team or I want to go build this massive warehouse and I can't get debt for it or something like that. Like more difficult, um, sticky kinds of situations where you need capital. Again, to like think back to the origins of venture, uh, a bunch of people wanted to build microchips and it was extremely capital intensive to do that. There's obviously returns on it and it was super asymmetrical. Some were going to work, some weren't. But a few people at HP, I think it was, were like, hey, this is a really good idea. Let's put money behind this and, you know, venture out our capital. Um, There's not so much venture in venture capital anymore. It's pretty like risk averse. You know, let's talk to multi-time founders. Let's talk to people that have done this a whole bunch of times. Let's talk to people who we know we're going to get our capital back from. And we know we're going to return, you know, on like a 10x, you know, multiple on capital or something like that. Um, It's just changed. Like the world has changed a bit. Um, But like I said... Just because the world has changed doesn't mean everyone should be raising capital at all costs for whatever reason. Um, You see it a lot with consumer companies. Like a lot of the times, if you're starting like a beauty brand, you probably don't need to raise venture capital. Um, Now, maybe if you want to build, you know, a $15 billion skincare company and you're trying to go super hard, super fast, but then you have a super high risk of burning out super quickly too. So it's really puts and takes. Um, I think, I think what we're seeing now is founders have more options. Founders have more optionality. Um, and the exceptional founders now have more choices and founders that weren't going to do well anyways, have more options to stay afloat longer that can disguise like poor operating skills in a way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what you said about like how VCs kind of trending to be somewhat more safe, right? Like they're looking for multiple time founders, et cetera, et cetera. And that that's partially because the space has changed, right? There are way more founders, like founding companies that have done that before. Right. Um, I'm finding that hard to reconcile with also like how hot the VC market is right now. Right. Because there's like an insane amount of money being thrown at people who are like, literally like, Oh, I have an idea and two engineers and it's been a month and a half. Right. So how do you see those two trends, I guess, like continuing in the future? I'm not asking you to be like, you know, a predictor of the future or anything, but like, 
based on what you've seen, like on the one hand, we have VCs being a lot more safe and a lot more conservative. But on the other hand, we have like these crazy high evaluations, especially in FinTech, right? How do those things like kind of combine and like reach an equilibrium? Um, I mean, there's a lot of money in the system right now. Um, capital is super cheap. Capital is a bit of a commodity right now. So like, I don't think this is forever. I don't think this is permanent. Um, there will be a time when it becomes very hard to raise again, like there'll be a point in time and I don't know necessarily what's going to happen. Maybe it's correction, maybe it's a crash, maybe it's a recession, maybe it's something in the next couple of years that really puts a gut check on like the financial system. Uh, but at some point in time, it'll become, you know, really difficult for, you know, LPs. So, uh, think like university endowments, institutions, high net worth individuals, um, sovereign wealth funds, fund of funds to get their capital because now all of a sudden interest rates snap back up and it doesn't make so much sense to just be giving capital to everyone. And then what that means is venture funds won't be able to raise as much money, which means funds are going to have to last longer or be smaller. And then what's going to happen is, you know, it's just like a trickle down effect. It's going to be harder for companies to raise money from those venture funds um, and things are going to change. But like I said, like it's still such a young asset class there's only been this ebb and flow cycle like two or three times, right? Mm. So it happened once in 2000 after the crash in the 90s or the early 2000s. Then it happened once in 2008 and it's probably going to happen in the next few years. So looking at it that way, I think you can just kind of look back at the previous cycles and say like, hey, this is probably something realistic that's going to happen um, in the not so distant future. I think one of the really cool things um, that's super, super interesting is if you look at the last major financial crisis, which was 2008, mm -hmm. most of the um, most of the companies that you see now as being these like massive success stories were started during the financial crisis. So I think like Uber, Snapchat, um, there's a bunch of other ones, but it's pretty cool because all of a sudden what you have now is maybe there's less money in the system, but there's also less opportunity in the system for people to go and work that like, you know, 500K a year software engineering contract job. Um, so people go and build stuff. People go do what they're passionate about and they do it out of necessity because they see a problem. Um, and you see a lot more problems when you're stuck, uh, when you've got a lot of different routes, you kind of maybe go around the problem or you go over it or under it. Um, when you've got to go right through it, it makes you want to fix it, uh, which is mm -hmm. kind of cool. So, I mean, I think we're probably going to see lots of cool companies getting started and lots of opportunity. I think we're going to see less opportunity. And I think we're probably going to see a lot of venture firms cease to exist in the next 10, 15 years, but it's life. And it forces you to be more scrappy too, right? Oh. When there's less money in the system. Uh, I think one of my favorite stories of scrappiness was with the Airbnb co-founders. Like for the longest time, they were drowning. Nobody saw their vision and they were like, eventually they almost gave up on it. But along the way, you know, just to keep afloat, this was uh, around the time of the presidential election when Obama was going up against McCain mm -hmm. and they released these uh like productized cereal boxes so they had obama o's and like mccain o's or whatever and they sold out like that helped them stay afloat a little bit and that like the fun fact on their story too is like that one little product helped uh uh paul graham who's the founder of uh, y combinator that was the deciding vote for him to help fund um airbnb back in the day because he saw that you know they're ready to do whatever the fuck it takes to stay afloat and not many people have that conviction with the thing that they're building so it's different right when you see people like that well and if um, you think about it too like if you think about a story like airbnb if that had happened let's say that happened today right let's say that they were going around i forget what the initial couple rounds of airbnb looked like or, or what they were trying to build but like imagine if round one they go to raise and they do and they raise a whole bunch of money and then they just start with you know plan one and mm -hmm. go and build that company because they raised a bunch of money to build that company and it doesn't work. And then people are like, oh, well, that's another failed company. See you later. And we have no Airbnb, right? Like stress, um, stress helps with that kind of stuff. This is actually, this is totally anecdotal, but I think super cool. Um, if you think about wine uh, and the way wine grows and grapes grows in different climates and different environments, one of the things that's super important is not to have too many nutrients in the soil. So if you think about growing anything else, like and most other things, you want to have super nutrient rich soil so the plants can grow and absorb it and get all the minerals and vitamins and everything you need to be strong. Mm -hmm. With grapes, 
you want them to grow in slightly suboptimal conditions because when the grapes don't have all of the nutrients, they struggle a little more and you get a smaller, less watery, denser, sweeter grape. Um, out, of, out of that stress is like born a superior grape um, versus if they had all the nutrients, it would just be this big watery, you know, like totally bland grape and you wouldn't get useless. the same thing. So that's why you see a lot yeah. of places like in like Bordeaux and Burgundy and uh, Piemont and Italy, like these uh, like clay uh, growing surfaces and stuff like that, rather than just regular dirt, which I think is super interesting, but it carries over to a lot of stuff. No, I love that. Like It's so, no, sorry, real quick. I'm so tired of hearing diamonds are formed under pressure. Like this is such a better <laughs> analogy. So I'm definitely going to start using that from now on. Have you heard so the quote that, that goes, um, like hard times breed tough people, tough people breed good times, good times breed weak people. And it's a cycle that continues. So yeah, I, I definitely butcher that. I paraphrase that, but there's like, I think one I've heard is hard times don't last or sorry, tough times don't last tough people do. Yeah. 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 That's that. Yeah. That, that one's good too. It's like, it's kind of out of necessity that these things are born right in that com- competitive spirit. Like necessity is the mother of invention. So, yeah. um, and, and in my personal prediction is that once this crash happens, whenever that contraction happens, I think Web 3.0 is taking the fuck off. Like, <laughs> I think it's like the perfect recipe for like, okay, we've had like centralized social media. We've had centralized like huge institutions, like controlling all the shit. And once people realize that it's not working and they go through really the first crash that a lot of people have ever gone through, right? Because if you were born in like, you know, anywhere from like 97 to like 2004, you didn't really experience 2008. Like your parents did, maybe your dad got laid off, but you didn't experience it, right? So this will be the first crash for a lot of people. I mean, if, look at all the Robinhood investors, right? They've been investing since what, 16, 17, and they've been making gains all the time because nothing's happened, yeah. right? So I think it'll it'll be really cool to see that. I don't know if you, you guys have any thoughts on that, but. 100%. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Like I think retail, retail trading is a whole ethical conversation we could have. Um, I think there's a lot of like ethical conversations to be had around tech um, outside of like the obvious stuff. So there's obviously mm-hmm. like, the Instagram conversation that's happening right now with the Facebook files and everything there, which is a whole nother can of worms. Um, mm-hmm. There's like the AI conversation. There's the driverless cars conversation. Um, there is this retail trading conversation, which is give everyone access or give no one access. But if you don't give anyone access, you're restricting opportunity, which is one thing. Um mm-hmm. But then you're seeing stuff like, so this company's like Sweater VC, that's allowing people to invest in venture funds in a sort of like retail way. You've got all these like uh, doing fractionalized commercial real estate investing. You've got companies, and I'm sure more and more is going to pop up where you're going to see like retail hedge funds and retail, um, what else? Retail private equity firms and retail like search funds. Um, Is that good that more people are getting access to that? Probably, probably yes. Um, but are you also going to have a lot of people who get exposed to it and end up losing a lot of money because they don't have the proper background on like the risk profile of those different asset classes? Also, probably, um, which is concerning. I think the the conversation I'm really interested in right now, and I've chatted with a few people about this, is uh, in commerce, where the conversation now is about just removing as many barriers to purchase as possible. So you've got like payments companies like Fast and Bolt and Rally. You've got companies doing um, buy now, pay later, like Klarna and Affirm and Quad Pay. And then you've got companies that are kind of like tying all those things together. And it kind of like begs the question, do you really need to be able to buy like that pair of shoes in one click? Uh, did that next page really change your life that much? Or did that one click purchase actually put you in a situation where maybe you have a compulsive shopping problem and maybe that's creating like cognitive uh, cognitive disassociation maybe you know your kid gets access to your computer and buys a bunch of stuff with one click checkout maybe you can't afford that thing and maybe you shouldn't you know use buy now pay later because you shouldn't be financing purchases that you can't afford right now there's obviously the flip side of that which is like if you need something you really need and you can't afford it then buy now pay later is awesome um but i think it's one of those things we're talking about like the future is now but not everyone has access when you live in like you know a toronto or sf or new york or austin or seattle or one of these like more major cities it's like of course of course everyone wants this this is going to be great everyone's going to love it and everyone who i know that lives around me and looks like me and thinks like me and has grown up like me thinks that but maybe if you're you know like a single mom in kentucky that is making ends meet and all of a sudden, you know, believes that you have access to something that in reality you really don't. 
um, you know, you're spending the same amount of money or at the same time, and it's still tough on that budget. Maybe that's an ethical conversation people need to be having, but. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It reminds me of the conversation we had with Sabrina on the podcast, who's like head of like this inclusive design consultancy. And like one thing about inclusive design is like people always say, oh, oh, our products are accessible, but it's accessible to the people you know are going to use it. If you, yeah. you aren't designing for somebody completely out of your scope. And like SF is a great example of that because I mean, there are so many products here that are literally the result of college age students moving here and not being able to, you know, basically live by themselves. Right. So what is DoorDash? DoorDash is a way for you to say, Hey, I can't cook. I'm going to order your food. You know what I mean? Like it's not solving an inherent human need problem that like really, really need to be solved. I, I think it's a great company. And I, I you know, I DoorDash food all the time. We're, gonna, we're about to DoorDash food. So that'll, that'll be a great time. But at the same time, it's like what is chosen to be worked on is the problems that these people experience. Right. And those don't necessarily scale across. Geography. Well, like I think five or six years ago, the the line was, you know, the, the best and brightest minds of our generation are working on ad tech, you know, like mm -hmm. we're on like Twitter ads and Google ad. Now I think it's, you know, the best and brightest minds of our generation are minting NFTs of been sketches of apes, right? Like, you know, <laughs> one of those things where it's like you, and, and look like that is, you can back that into a bigger conversation about what decentralization means in a more broad term, but, you know, as, as sort of like an off the cuff, you know, thing. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. Sorry, like, that won't be the soundbite. That won't be the Yeah, no, like no one's, <laughs> no one's, uh, no one's like encouraging or inspiring or at least motivating financially people to go and like graduate university and go work on climate change or like go try and solve world hunger or work on overcrowding or like population crises. Like these are, these are real problems that don't exist in a place like San Francisco do exist in lots of other places, but the resources are going to people who are going to make like, you know, a B2B SaaS product, which is, which is like a weird idiosyncrasy in the world and it is what it is. And like, I don't have a good answer on how to fix that. And I think the best answer right now is just try to give access, capital, resources, and time to people who represent different kinds of backgrounds and different upbringings and different paths into stuff. And um, there's lots of people doing really interesting stuff around that, which I think is really great. And like I said, it's still a super young space and there's going to be some kinks, but hopefully we work them out. Well, we also, I mean, there's also the existence of B Corps, right? B Corporations who their yeah. entire their entire ethos is supposed to be centered around balancing purpose and profit. So they're legally, actually, they're legally required to consider the impact um, of their decisions. Are like, Do you think we'll ever actually see the ubiquity of B Corps? Because, I mean, it's not always the most profitable kinds of business that, that focus on purposes, right? Totally. Um, and you're seeing like different versions of that kind of ripple through everything. Um, so like this it, it, is, it sounds so boilerplate and so stupid, but like ESG, so like or environmental social governance practices in investing, it's becoming something that's uh, more prominent in venture. Um, and it's coming from the top down, which is really good where LPs are saying, Hey, we want to see this in, in our funds that we invest in. And ergo, we want to see your companies taking on socially, you know, beneficial practices and environmental practices. Um, I don't know. I think the B Corp thing is really cool. There's the 1% for the planet thing. I think Bessemer just got a billboard in Times Square talking about 1% for the planet, which is cool. Um, but yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of cool initiatives going on. I think what it really comes down to though is you can slap as many labels as you want or like pay for as many accreditations as you want and talk about how great you're doing. I think what's, what's really going to be interesting is when people go and, and actually put some real weight behind it and solve a problem rather than like say, Hey, we're going to commit to solving this problem, um, which would be cool. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned backgrounds and my transition is for that is what's your background how'd you get into vc uh what was your path because i think you you had like a pretty non-traditional path you're not the typical you know harvard mba student that you know goes does a does a fellowship or whatever and, and gets into a vc firm so how, how did you do it and why vc yeah 100 um just to like to back it out a little bit uh i actually generally like kind of start this conversation around sports and athletics. Um, I grew up pretty fortunate to be able to do a ton of like really random kind of niche sports. Uh, so growing up, my two big things were sailing and, and skiing. Uh, so ski racing and, and racing sailboats. Um, 
I went to this really cool school called the National Ski Academy, where I was able to basically train all the time, be on snow all the time. Really, really enjoyed that. Lived in Europe, raced, had a lot of fun. Um, when I was in grade 10, I made the national sailing team, which was the other sport I was doing. So left that school, moved to Oakfield, lived with my dad, be closer to Toronto, which is where our national team headquarters were. Um, and then started campaigning for the Rio 2016 games. And that was like the plan. The plan was go to Rio, go to Tokyo, win an Olympic medal, glory, fame, amazing, you know, everything <laughs> like that. Um, that didn't happen, unfortunately. I uh, didn't make the Rio games by just a hair. That was pretty tough. Um, and I had to kind of reevaluate things. I was looking at it and I'd gotten into university as in my first year of school. Um, and I, I kind of had to make the call. Do I want to drop out of school, fully drop out of school and spend four years trying for Tokyo, which was in 2020 turned out to be 2021. Um, or do I do school and then come back to it later? And then in 2019, when I was meant to graduate, just kind of like sit down and make that call. If I want to go back into sailing, um, as far as VC, uh, so I ended up doing the school thing and, and looking at work and, and kind of like different career paths I wanted to follow and different ways to think about it. Um, my Both my parents worked in tech uh, when I was a kid. So my dad and, and my stepmom, uh, my dad was in, he worked at like Netscape and Silicon Graphics way back in the day, total like tech guy. Uh, my stepmom worked at Salesforce for like 15 years, total vet. Um, so for me growing up as a kid, I was like, what's the last thing I want to do? The last thing I want to do is work in tech. I want to be as far away from tech as physically possible. So naturally I was like, I'm going to do finance. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I liked it and I enjoyed it. And I had some really cool teachers in high school that like kind of guided me towards that. So really lucky in that sense. Uh, went to business school, studied finance, did the whole thing. Um, first summer of school when most people are kind of doing like internship, maybe they're still working at you know, whatever their high school summer job was or working at camp. Uh, I got the opportunity to just go do sales at a tech company. Um, most banks and iBanks and consulting firms were really hiring first years that had barely done any school, let alone work. So it's a good opportunity. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take that. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Like really, really loved it. And it was kind of like, oh, I kind of like this. Uh, next summer, kind of looked at the banking thing, looked at the finance thing, looked at the consulting thing, was like, maybe I go work at a fintech company. Maybe I'll do sales. Maybe sales and trading is my thing. And maybe I'll go get some sales experience and then come in later and I'll figure it out. Worked at a company, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I realized, oh crap, like I'm going into a third year summer, which is my last year of internships. Like I've got to bridge this gap pretty quickly. Um, ended up going, okay, well, what's the, you know, what's in the middle of finance and tech? It's got to be fintech. So let me try and do something cool in the fintech space. Ended up getting a job at Wellsimple, which is a Canadian robo-advisor company. They do kind of like financial management for everyone. Um, working on a really cool team that was Wellsimple for advisors, which was a small team within Wellsimple, which was already a pretty big company at the time, around 300 people. Uh, and because I was on the smaller yeah, team, I was able to get back. exposure to all of like their investors, board members, you know, exec team. And I was like, holy crap, like, this is what VCs are. Like, this is cool. And I met VCs for the first time and heard about it for the first time. And I was like, this is great. This is like the perfect marriage between tech, finance, doing what I like and doing what I want. Like, this is great. Um, so I ended up kind of like asking people, trying to figure out like what you do, how'd you get here? And they're all like, ah, like, fuck off. You're, you know, you're like some 19 year old kid, like see you in 10 years. It's like, cool. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, so when I was graduating from Laurier, I went and applied to every VC in the city of Toronto. Uh, they all were like, Hey, thanks so much for the note. Uh, great chatting with you, but we only hire people with two years of like banking or consulting experience. I was like, okay, cool. Um, so I'll go do that. So I applied to, you know, five consulting firms, five banks, and then a bunch of tech companies just as a hedge and ended up getting a job at a big consulting firm that was for like January of the next year, I graduated in April. So I had eight months to kind of do nothing. And I was looking at it, thinking about it. And I asked them, I was like, Hey, do you guys mind if I work in between now and starting at this firm? They're like, yeah, no problem. Just make sure you quit before January. And I was like, sounds good. Uh, so I ended up getting a job at this like super small tech company at the time called ClearBank. And they were doing some like cool funding applications for e-commerce companies. I was like, this sounds interesting. Uh, so I went, started on the sales team, did pretty well, uh, ended up getting a promotion very, very quickly. Uh, and they gave me the opportunity to basically say, hey, look, we know you're interested in venture. You can either be an account exec and do full cycle sales, or 
you can run venture capital partnerships on the West Coast for us. And I was like, that sounds awesome. So turned down the consulting offer, went full-time, properly full-time with ClearBank. And I think they thought I was full-time already, but I, in my head, was kind of holding back <laughs> a little bit. Um, committed to that, did that for two and a half years, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and then eventually it was just kind of at the point where I wanted more and I wanted to actually sit on the other side of the table and, and work in venture. Uh, and I couldn't do that at ClearBank. So I got an opportunity to join a four uh, earlier this year and jumped at it. So what's that code? If you get a C in a rocket ship, don't ask which C. Yeah. The fuck on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, and, and I think that's the thing is like, I had everything planned so like tightly and I was like, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to follow this specific path and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, and I took a lot of turns along the way. Like I started interviewing for venture firms when I was at ClearBank and they were all like, hey, kid, thanks for coming. You have no investment track record. Get out of here. Uh, and I was like, what do you mean? Like I've been working you know, with you guys for the last two years. And then I got super lucky and got the opportunity to go work with the team at Sousa Ventures for six months um, through their fellowship program and get exposure to direct investing and actually start to see companies and sorry, got a burp. Um, and <laughs> all the stuff on the podcast you don't you don't think about or see is like if you have a hiccup, like you know, people oh, sorry, it gets cut out. It gets cut out. Like, got um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, got the opportunity to work with the team at Sousa Ventures and their venture fellows program and do that, which was amazing. Um, get some experience. And then right after that, I was able to land a gig with a four, which has been amazing. Mm -hmm. How's the four been so far? Like walk us through starting like full-time at, at a VC firm. Yeah, for I sure. You can. Yeah. Definitely been, definitely been crazy doing it remote. Um, can, can absolutely say it's been one of those weird experiences where there's a bit of dis, uh, disconnect. Um, but that being said, it's been amazing. Getting down here has been awesome. Um, for context, I run ops and platform at Afora, which if you think about a venture firm, there's two sides. There's uh, getting companies interested in the firm, there's investing in the companies, and then there's supporting the companies after you invest. So I focus mostly on the before and after on and less on the actual investing. So uh, work on a lot of like portfolio support, programming, events, um, stuff around like fund administration, fund operations, um, the actual more like mechanics of the firm, and then get to help out on some investing stuff when, uh, when I have a little free time as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're one of those people that moved from Toronto to SF, you know, for opportunity. Um, do you see that trend continuing? And, and why, why did you feel like you needed to come to SF? Because like, I, I assume most of your work is remote, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I I think I probably could have stayed a few more months in Toronto mm -hmm. for sure. Um, you know, selfishly, I just wanted to be here. Uh, I think San Francisco is a cool city. I love California. I love being on the West Coast. Um, all the stuff I like to do is awesome out here. So it makes me super happy to be here. Um, there's also something about when you grow up in a city and you spend a lot of time in a city, it becomes less special and you can get comfortable. And there's an element of getting out and doing something scary. Uh, that's just really exciting to me. This is a bit tangential, but so I got super lucky and I got to go on exchange when I was in university. Uh, so when I was in fourth year, I lived in Paris for a while, um, which was super awesome. And one of the European exchange students I was there with, who was from like Germany or something, she asked me where I planned on living after I graduated. And to me, it's like, what a weird question. Like, of course I'll live where I'm living now. Like I'll go live in Toronto. I'll just live in the biggest city within, you know, a couple hours drive from where I grew up because that's just what you do. Like you grew up in Mississauga or Scarborough, you live in Toronto, you grew up in, you know, around New York, you go to New York. So that was just kind of what I thought. Um, but the mindset for her and, and there was like, she's a citizen of the EU. She can live in any country in the EU she wants. So this is a big decision. It's like, where am I going to live? Um, and when I started thinking about it, I started thinking, yeah, like there's visas to figure out and there's all these pieces to put into place, but like, why wouldn't you just want to go live in like the best place for you? Like, why are you saying like, mm -hmm. oh, I have to live in Canada because I'm Canadian. You don't have to live anywhere. You can live anywhere. Um, so I was starting to think about it. I was like, well, I like to ski. I like to sail. I like to ride my bike. So where are places that I have the ocean mountains and really cool, like hiking and trails and interesting stuff. And it was San Francisco, Vancouver, LA, um, and a few other places. And then also working in tech and being interested in this kind of world, San Francisco just kind of became a huge no brainer. 
Amazing. And is it living up to the hype? You live it up to the hype. Uh, I'm honestly super enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't change for the world. So I know that it's, it's an acquired taste. Not everyone loves SF and is as lucky as me where they get here and they're just enamored by it. But yeah, I'm pretty stoked to be here. And I'm pretty happy. So awesome. Now, um, so something, I, I mean, like, I guess this may have come up in that decision-making process as well, deciding to sell down in SF. But I mean, a huge thing in VC as well is just managing risk, right? And yeah. I was actually surprised. I mean, like maybe I shouldn't be as surprised as I was to hear that VCs are kind of risk averse in that sense. I mean, especially if you're dealing with a lot of money, right? You would rather hedge your bets on some more surefire wins than things that are a little more speculative. Um, what, what, like, based on your experience, is there any specific framework that you follow to help manage risk that you built up now? Um, like in work or in life? I mean, like, it could be applicable to both, right? Or is there spe- like specific frameworks that you have for each domain? Uh, I, I think honestly, the the number one thing I could say around that is like. Try, go with your gut like do, do what you feel is right and generally speaking like you say think with your gut and it's like oh it's a gut decision like you didn't really put much thought into that but when you really think about it you've been preparing to make that decision your whole life and like all of the things you've learned in life up until that point that you feel like matter are like manifested inside your brain and you're kind of nascently thinking about it all the time so when you see something if you really like it there's probably other factors going into the fact that you like it. And yeah, like do your research, do your due diligence and talk about it. Um, but there was a study that got done a few years ago by NVCA, which is like the National Venture Capital Association or something like that. And companies that were sort of like hummed and hawed over where it was like, we kind of like it. We think we like it. These are the reasons. Let's like go into this. Let's look at the price. Let's go through it. Do we really love it? Do we not? But then it got done were some of the worst performing deals when they spent a lot of time like reasoning and logicking around it. Companies where they met the founder, they met the company and they were just like, yes, let's do the deal. Let's do it um, right away. No matter how much work went in after it, that initial meeting was really, really good. And they got really excited really, really quickly. You know, nine out of 10 times, those are the companies that perform really, really well. Um, and I think that it's kind of, it seems kind of silly to say like, follow your gut and follow your instincts and trust yourself. But so many people spend so much time trying to be something. Um, one of the things I see here a lot that drives me crazy is everyone wants to be like a contrarian. Like everyone wants to have some contrarian point of view, um, which is like such bullshit because if this has always been my thought, this is a question you get asked in venture interviews is like, what's a belief you deep, you know, hold I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you that oh, question. What's a belief you hold deeply that other people don't believe to be true? Yeah. And my answer to that question is always, well, if I had a belief that I held deeply that others don't think to be true, that I know is true, I would probably figure out how to start a company around it. Like that's really the answer. Um, and I, cause I don't, I don't have a ton of beliefs that I hold deeply to be true, but mm-hmm. with a lot of beliefs that are loosely held that I'm more than happy to change my opinion on and talk about and think differently about. And I think that's a very like important distinction to make. Um, so I guess my contrarian views is that contrarian views are bullshit. Um, that's one. Um, and then like just other stuff, like you see all kinds of weird stuff, like people trying to be altruistic thinkers. It's like, you know, what are you gonna have altruistic thoughts about? You're, you know, 24, go live your life and experience it and go do dumb stuff. And, go party and go like meet people and have life experiences to be able to base that thought process around and to be able to base that lived experience around. I think a lot of people are jumping into life way too quickly and not actually living it. Um, That you've got a bunch of people that are like unhappy, overworked, underpaid, not happy with where they are, always want more. And not enough people that are just happy to live in the moment, appreciate what they have, appreciate the the position that they're in and the opportunities that they have and be able to like see that and enjoy it. Like I'm very cognizant of the fact that I am extremely lucky to be doing what I'm doing. Um, and I'm extremely lucky to have gotten here in the way that I did and I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, and I'm going to like really ring every last little bit about it because I don't know if this is the first out of 20 jobs in venture I'm going to have, or if it's the last one. Um, but either way, I'm going to do the best job I can while I'm here. I'm going to enjoy it and we're going to go from there. So yeah, it reminds me. So there's two things that come to mind. On the first point, there is a saying, um, why do you have to be a nonconformist just like everybody else? <laughs> Love the raw irony in that. <laughs> and um, 
Okay, I have a real quick question, actually, because we're getting close to time. But would you ever consider investing in a podcast? Or like, what kind of what would it take to get to that point? Uh, I don't. Maybe it's like an off the cuff question, or it's like a little random. But uh, like people do that. That's a thing. Um, like I think it's like the hustle, uh, morning brew, the athletic. Like the the athletic got acquired for a ton of money by someone uh, a while ago. I don't really follow like media or that space too too much. So I don't have a really really great answer for you. But um, there's some like really cool opportunities there. I think it depends though. Um, one of the jokes I have with a few of my friends is we'll be sitting around and be talking about like life or whatever. We'll be having a really funny conversation and someone will go, bro, like we should start a podcast. And the response to that question has to be like, yeah, said every guy in their twenties ever like, okay, sure. Yeah. You should start a podcast. But I think that there's real opportunities to do something special and do something cool. Um, so I mean, maybe not this one at this point in time, but <laughs> don't worry we're uh, we're on the rise uh i remember that the second thing i was going to say is about you mentioning how like 20 somethings are just jumping to life so quickly we've also yeah. seen like this astronomical rise in 20 somethings releasing memoirs which like come on you're 20 something years old you're really? sorry people do that yeah people like they're releasing memoirs about their lives like like why you know like you usually you leave it to the greats right they've lived these fascinating lives they've done so much accomplished so much and of course you got it you want to hear this story nobody cares yeah. about this random like tech bro that's 25 years old that <laughs> like, had a different stint at every fan company that's pretty wild um okay i like that idea if you're gonna write like a short series of journal entries to memorialize your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and then at the end you like put it all together and you have this body of work i think that's cool um calling it a memoir like <laughs> isn't that that's like you write that on your deathbed like these are like my life's lessons that i've learned yeah pretty much yeah for a generation behind like an like, obituary type thing yeah that's yeah. dark man forget like forget weird that's 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 dark um well, i don't think they intended in a dark sense it was more so like look at how interesting my life has been you wish yeah. my shoes probably something like that. every other 20 year old does and start a vlog that no one's gonna watch that's, that's yeah way more or start a podcast these days now i guess oh, or yeah. Podcast oh yeah or a food instagram yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, <laughs> all of the above all of the above you gotta start a bike account that's what you gotta do right <laughs> you know i've been thinking about it i've been thinking like how much fun would it be to have a vlog that people actually watched and then i remembered that 99% of vlogs don't get watched and then I was just thinking about like the social anxiety I would have walking around filming for a vlog <laughs> I'm going oh my god what are you filming for and I go oh my vlog and then they go oh like what's the link let me look it up and then I go give them the link and then I've got three followers and they're like <laughs> yeah. and then they don't follow you and you're like ah. oh that hurts that hurts gotta support local gotta support local I'll follow you uh, yeah I'll, I'll be local I don't know. This is like another real quick tangent, but like people who are into like biking and mountain biking, they're like the nicest community. Like everybody I've met that's interested in it, they're just so compassionate. And like, even though your bikes cost like $20,000, they're just like, yeah, you know, you can go take a spin on it. Or like, I even knew one guy who, uh, like one of his friends joined a bike club, didn't have a bike. So he's like, yeah, you know, I have this spare. You can just use it. Just like bring it back to my house whenever you're done. It's just, yeah. it's so expensive. First, first hits free, my guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's it's yeah. You, you mix it up. It's not a community. It's a cult. Uh, it's not a sport. It's a lifestyle. Uh, and they're not being. Oh. They're selling you. Uh, I'm bad. No, but uh, no, it's it's a lot of fun. I think I think maybe one of the reasons is like it's a huge community. Um, mm -hmm. And there's generally good people that like to hang out with good people. There's definitely a lot of shitty people too. Mm -hmm. Everything, but. Yeah, actually, I, I was super lucky in that sense too. Like when I started riding, someone gave me a bunch of stuff and was like, "Hey, come, come ride, come hang out. I like doing this. I want to do it with you. Let's do it together." Um, and you got to pay it forward. Like it's one of those things. It's like you maybe don't want to just jump into it head first. So if someone who does it is willing to help, it makes a big difference. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Who said romance is dead? All right. So we have two minutes left and we have a traditional final question that we always ask every one of our guests. Hopefully Fouad hasn't mentioned this to you because it's always better as a surprise. But Fouad, I'll let you uh, take the floor. I don't believe I have. So I think this works out perfect. And the question is, if you could put any one message on a billboard that reached millions, even billions of people 
you can stratify the audience however you want it or keep it open. What message would you put on that billboard and why? Good question. Take your time. Take your time. Because this is a this is the last thing you're gonna say on the podcast. I'm gonna say be kind. Just be kind. Be kind to each other, be kind to one another, be kind to your mom, be kind to your dad, be kind to your sister, be kind to your neighbor. Just be kind. I mean, like the, the shit hand answer would be like, can I put a link tree or like a bit.ly or something like that with a link to my podcast or can I throw like a QR code up there or something? Um, but <laughs> I'm going to go with be kind. Okay. Yeah. You know, that, that's probably, uh, that's probably best or, in their SEO too. Or GM, GM to the web three boys. G- oh yeah I, honestly that's a very uh, divisive topic these days apparently like i was talking to a couple of devs and they absolutely hate web 3 they hate that people are calling this like a new paradigm when you know we haven't solved all the problems of web 2 and it's not like web 3 is solving all of those problems but anyways that's a conversation for another time um, i mean maybe i mean maybe another good thing to put on uh on the billboard just be like if you're reading this it's too late and then make everyone think that drake's about to drop another album Oh, I like that. I think, especially because I'm from Toronto. Right? You like fuck with people a little bit. You could put like, you know, just a date. You could put like, you know, November 18th, 2025 and just leave it there and see what happens. Like that, that would be hilarious. Yeah. Just like a countdown something, right? Like, yeah. oh yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. It would be awesome. Yeah, this is... <laughs> oh, sorry. What was that? I should do that. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's we've literally never gotten that answer before so i love the ingenuity i love the mischief a timer you, you are a contrarian you are a contrarian riley uh, <laughs> no, I'm, just, time in BC. I'm just a fool that's it i'm just a, i'm just a big happy idiot <laughs> yeah. that's why i'm so that's why i'm so smiley all the time is because i'm just blissfully ignorant to all the goings on in the world yeah you know the world's sad <laughs> this is this is the way yeah this i need to be way. a little bit more ignorant all right riley um so we've reached the end of our conversation. Thank you for your little mischievous answer at the end there uh, for spicing things up. Uh, is there anything that you would like to spend these last like 15 seconds with promoting anything you want to plug? If people can, if people want to reach you, where can they do so? Yeah, I got a new movie coming out uh, with Jonah Hill and Seth Rogen. Uh, it's <laughs> Friday, October 29th. Make sure to check <laughs> it out. No, I'm kidding. I wish. How cool would that be? Imagine actually having something to plug um <laughs> the bike instagram bro the yeah. bike instagram my, my twitter is riley finch 13 it's my name and bad luck so go have a look at that um that's about it i tweet a mix of uh being upset at fedex and or uber eats and also lukewarm takes on s1 filings and sometimes a shit post so there's that oh love to see right. it Awesome. Riley, thank you so much. I'll see you in a bit. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah. We'll let, we'll let you know when this episode is being released, probably this Wednesday. Uh, and if there's anything you want to cut out, let us know. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, just cut out the part where I said the bad thing. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.